This presentation was recorded live at the 19th annual SRI in the Rockies Conference, Beyond Borders, Investing and Partnering for a Sustainable World, held October 26th through 29th, 2008, in Whistler, British Columbia, Canada. My name is Doug Arendt, and I'm one of the conference committee members and um, have happily been able to help organize uh, this particular panel along with Susan Babcock, who is unable to join us um, right yet this morning. So as we move forward, I think you should all know, and I'm very pleased to see um, virtually every seat filled, that clean tech and climate um, were two of very um, significant areas of interest uh, to the conference group this year, and it's really been a pleasure to put together a panel uh, of this caliber uh, to help address uh, the clean tech part of the equation. And um, to moderate the panel, um, a real pleasure to have Ken Lachlan with us. Ken brings 25 years of uh, experience in the investment world with more than 15 in the clean tech sector itself. Um, he has... Uh, He's a principal um, at the Clean Energy Group. He's an advisor to uh, many different activities, but including the Massachusetts Green Energy Fund and uh, a partner with uh, the Energy Investors Group with over a billion in uh, power sector funds uh, that they manage. And he's also a founding member of the steering committee of ACOR, the American Council on Renewable Energy. So a lot of experience, uh, a lot of wisdom, and I'm going to turn it over to Ken to uh, run the panel and to introduce the rest of the speakers, please. Welcome. It's thrilling for us to see everybody here this morning. It's also very exciting to have this particular topic on the agenda in a couple of places today. hasn't uh, been regularly, in part because the markets are, are emerging, um, but we're very excited to see that uh, interest in the part of uh, SRI and the Rockies as a conference and, of course, all of you. I'm going to provide a very brief uh, framing overview and uh, then move quickly through our panels. By way of background, I'm going to ask one favor. We have a very tight agenda today, and we're going to have a series of brief presentations with a fairly large block of time for Q&A at the end and discussion. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to hold your questions, even clarifying questions. Write them down, and we're happy to get to them. We're going to run through these presentations quickly, have a quick discussion uh, uh, about some broader issues, and then open up the floor as fast as we can. I work with uh, a U.S.-based NGO, and uh, we, uh, the Clean Energy Group, and in particular, I lead the practice there that is focused on supporting institutional investors, everything from large state pension funds to small family offices, as they cry, try and focus on their interest in low-carbon investing uh, in a general sense, and uh, that's a particular interest of mine. I also work with, uh, along with the NGO series to support the investor network on climate risk. They have two programs of activity, one an activism arm and the other an opportunity investment arm, and I work to assist them in, in allocating their uh, investment assets, uh, a group of very large uh, institutions and some smaller ones, uh, cumulative value of their holdings in excess of $5 trillion. So quick definition now, uh, we're going to talk today about clean energy, we're going to talk about clean tech, and we're going to talk about low carbon. They're not the same, but they're all related. Clean energy is what you would expect. It's energy that doesn't have a carbon content, doesn't include nuclear. Um, 
clean tech includes clean energy and adds other low-resource intensity kinds of activities, uh, which Raphael will talk about in more detail. Uh, and then the, uh, I would argue, broader low-carbon sector includes all of clean energy and most of clean tech activities. So what are the fundamentals behind this, this, uh, this kind of investment active? What's driving this right now? First of all, we think that fiduciaries are increasingly recognizing their need to manage risks and optimize returns from activities that are related to the impact of climate change at a very commercial level. We're not talking about political decisions here. We're talking about investment decisions that are being driven by external realities that are geopolitical, that are uh, geographic, that are climatological, and in some cases that are political. I would argue that climate change is really one of the fundamental uh, corporate governance and financial drivers for probably the next half century if we do it right. If we do it wrong, it's going to last a whole lot longer and then it'll get a lot uglier. But we've got a pretty good window to focus on in that period. Who says it's an important driver? I do, but I've been doing this for 20 years and haven't been all that much interest. But now there are radical folks uh, that, like Goldman Sachs and McKinsey who are making the same point, and that should be encouraging to those of you who think that they give good advice. Maybe a somewhat smaller group today than it was uh, six or eight weeks ago, but still uh, they've been paid a lot of money at least for those thoughts. The next major driver is the fact that low-carbon energy resources are increasingly effective and increasingly attractive as key parts of our energy infrastructure. You can't see the details of the slides, which actually is information that came out of NREL a few years back. Uh, the curve, the direction of the curves is clear. We're talking about wind uh, and solar thermal technologies, which are signing contracts today for energy that's priced uh, at or below the level of new coal fire generation. We're talking about uh, photovoltaic energy, solar energy, which is producing uh, at power at prices which are attractive today and which, again, our friends at NRL tell us will be cost competitive with grid power in major blocks of the U.S. market over the next, uh, in the next uh, half decade. Can we bring up the volume a little bit? Thank you so much. So as a result of all that, I would, ooh, whoa, what a sense of power. As a result of all that, I would argue that we really are looking at the fundamental re-engineering of the energy infrastructure and a lot of the rest of industry uh, over the course of uh, the, this century. And this is a multi-trillion dollar investment process. It's central to the way we'll look at industrial and commercial activities. So why should you care about low-carbon investing? Well, because it's a very large market growing very quickly, and it's one we all need to recognize and consider in our investment planning. Give you a little sense of, of how large. Here's some information from my friends at New Energy Finance. Now I'm talking just about the clean energy markets. Raphael will add in some, some broader figures on clean tech. Looking at the growth in the market, uh, approaching $150 billion in 2007, um, particularly interesting to me, 9.6% of energy infrastructure spending globally now in the sector, and that's increasing at quite an, an impressive clip. And from a personal perspective, we now have a clean uh, energy industry which is two and a half times the size of the commercial aircraft industry. When I started off my career, I was financing commercial aircraft, and I must say I never expected we'd see this industry to be bigger than that one because those are 
big, expensive bits of gear, and there are a lot of them around. So this is a market of, of a really significant scale. If we look in a little more detail through the broad picture of the size of the market to the level of activity, we see that there is very significant investment activity and very significant growth at every level from the project level up on the top to the, co the company level, if you will, in the center, uh, to the startup level down at the bottom. You hear most about the startup investments, uh, venture capital, of course, drawing a lot of attention, and it's important because it underpins the growth we see later in these other categories. And if you look across the sectors uh, of this industry, you see enormous growth rates, really quite startling, and very substantial levels of investment right across the entire uh, set. So I would suggest to you that this is today a very vibrant global market. It's one that's supported by really solid fundamentals that aren't changing or going away anytime soon. And it's one that's seeing double and, in some cases, even triple-digit annual growth rates. So to me, that suggests that even if the work in this sector were not central and essential to all of our children's future, and it is, you should be paying careful attention to it purely from an investment perspective. So now briefly to touch on the program as we go forward, I'm going to ask uh, Raphael uh, first to talk in particular about some of uh, the work that Cleantech uh, has done in their private equity activities, but he's also going to give you some information on their public equity and, uh, and index work. Bruce is going to talk uh, about the particular focus on public equity that Impacts has had over uh, their last more than a decade of work in this area. Then we've asked uh, Polly Shaw from SunTech to come in and talk. SunTech is one of the, depending on how you measure, two or three uh, largest and most successful uh, solar PV companies in the world today. Then we're going to spend a few minutes, just four or five minutes, talking uh, among ourselves, but for your benefit, perspectives on today after the complications of, uh, of uh, from financial point of view of the last uh, four to six weeks, then we'll open the floor for questions and run that right out uh, to, the, to the close. So I hope this approach will be helpful for you. I'm really appreciative of all of you joining us today. And uh, with that, let me turn this over to uh, Raphael. Thank you, Ken. Can everybody hear me okay? Um, good morning. I'd like to tell you that despite the fact that uh, we have a chicken little market where the sky perhaps really is falling in a temporary, I am just as excited as I've always been in the last 24 years in the clean technology space about the opportunities for the future. And that is because we still have 2.7 billion people coming to the planet in the next 35 years. Um, we have a $40 trillion need for expenditure just in rural, I mean, urban infrastructure, which is very heavy on water and energy transmission, uh, and greatly in need of what we clean technology solutions. So the drivers of those and the rising wealth in the world and the fact that people want to eat meat instead of beans and they want to uh, live in a brick home instead of a thatch hut um, and the fact that we're living in an unsustainable manner are all massive drivers for the need for clean technology solutions. And so even despite the turmoil right now, this is really noise because all of these issues uh, are not changing and therefore the demand remains unabated and is really um, something we look at as, you know, it's a hiccup. Even what happens in the U.S. election to a short-term degree 
for us is we look at this as just a very small bit of turbulence and really uh, a much lar larger issues in which the entire planet's survival is at stake. Um, the clean tech group, really what we are here is to um, provide the insight and opportunities and relationships that, that accelerate the growth of clean technology, innovation, and market adoption that uh, really we sort of sit at the nexus between all the venture capitalists in the world who invest in this space, the research and development R&D and research laboratories uh, such as NREL and Max Planck Institute and others around the world, um, the entrepreneurs and the, and the corporate adopters. And our goal is the fact that we are in touch with all of these companies. We get to screen almost every venture capital deal that gets done in the sector. So we have thousands of deals that we've screened. Um, companies have presented our forum. We've, they've helped raise over about $1.3 billion um, uh, through us. Um, and we track all the deals. We have huge databases of all the intellectual property. And so we really have a, an ideal bird's eye view of everything that's going on in the space. Um, we have offices in India, in China, in the UK, Canada, and, and across the US. Um, and we really, really have uh, tremendous capabilities in terms of research um, and data. And um, we also have a group called the Clean Tech Accelerator, which was developed to help companies advise them and implement um, energy and environmental technologies. We're the sole screener right now for Walmart for all their energy and environmental activities. Um, those ideas all come through us. Uh, we have uh, the Cleantech Capital, which I'm part of, which is actually public market indexes and exchange-traded funds based on those on the best clean technology companies. Uh, we have a search group to help the companies, and uh, we do a lot of publishing and, and custom research. So advance. I think we uh, so what the heck is this clean tech anyhow? It really is a very broad-based category that cuts across all industries. It really is knowledge-based technology, products and solutions that help reduce costs and provide better performance and eliminating negative environmental impacts or in re re improving the uh, productive and responsible use of resources. So it goes from energy, such as energy storage, Energy transmission, which is a very, very, very big deal, as much um, renewable fuels, renewable energy, uh, infrastructure, um, transportation, um, logistics, you know, to, but these are all very technology-based. Um, water, and, which is actually an enormous sector for clean water, water purification, air and environment with very minimal exposure to things like remediation and cleanup are really talking about much more proactive solutions, um, some trading, emissions controls. Um, new and more environmentally friendly materials, everything from lighter carbon composite materials to um, non-toxic and more friendly chemicals, manufacturing and industrial efficiency, technologies, agriculture, and this is a really up-and-coming area, and I'm not talking about as much biofuels as I am talking about uh, biogenerated materials, biogenerated uh, foods, new aqu aquaculture technologies, um, and even um, what we call biofriendly pesticides and things like that. And then, of course, recycling and, and waste treatment as, as a smaller sector. We're really talking about things with very strong intellectual property, which have the ability not to be commodities, but to be able to earn um, significant long-term profits. Um, and this is just it gives you an idea of the clean tech index. Very quickly, you can see it's a lot more than just energy and water. And in fact, uh, in the public equity index, about 48% uh, of us are, of our index is related to energy. And a lot of that is even in energy efficiency. So there are numerous opportunities here with many very well-established companies that have the majority of their business in, in, in the sectors that we were just talking about. 
um, and we do very, very rigorous screening on all the companies that would go into the index because a lot of these companies that are especially the more recent ones aren't going to survive or we don't think will be very profitable in the long run. So the, the trick in our due diligence is to find the ones that we think are the winners and that are going to really represent the growth. Um, and um, I'm going to go to the next slide. And just, just so you know, um, I have much more detailed um, presentations, which I'm happy to give you electronically or email them to you um, afterwards. So if you just come by or talk to me, I'll be happy to give them to you. Um, and, and right now, um, clean technology has become the number two venture capital category. Uh, when it was number three last year, this year is about be about a record year. I don't expect that to hold true next year because um, I don't have any visibility of what's going to be like next year. But uh, I think this year we're going to be over $6 billion invested in clean technology ventures. And this is not private, this is just pure ventures. And you can see that um, solar is very strong, although it mostly has shifted to thin film solar and what we call utility scale solar thermal. Um, and um, Everything, uh, even biofuels, has come down significantly, but there are people trying new things there. There's a lot of very exciting technologies. And what's really important to me in this is that venture capital is, um, and, and by the way, there are a number of sectors that, that are uh, very underinvested in still, particularly in uh, agricultural materials, the electrical grid, and um, water. And I'll come back to the other point in a second. You could see that the investment across the world has been quite significant. Obviously, North America has a commanding share of the investment in year-to-date. Actually, year-to-date, we're already at about $6 billion, um, through the second quarter. But even in uh, India and China and Israel and Europe, the growth has been really tremendous in the investment field. And really, uh, we're talking here about much more proactive. Instead of cleaning up, we're talking about prevention of uh, environmental hazards and remediation and really extensive use of information technology and biotechnology. Um, and there's a significant overlaps uh, between the technologies being used for clean energy and clean water. And, and it's very interesting because these are often where some of the most exciting opportunities are coming on the, the venture stage companies. Um, and why, why is the venture capital important? Because it's really the, the single, according to the Milken Institute, the single best indicator of areas for future economic growth. And so the fact that this is one of the largest areas of venture capital means that a few years from now, you're going to see the strongest areas of economic growth in the entire country, in the entire world, coming from this sector. And one of the things that we say, this is a really quick, critical wave of innovation um, that, that's very, very important. And there's some details here I'm just going to skip through. Um, you'll be able to get this in our presentation. But uh, there is a major shortage of R&D done by companies and venture capital-driven uh, companies are really, um, versus the corporate, are really filling the space. Um, we have an index that's really meant to track the success of clean technology by focusing only on the best companies in the index and really track the success of the overall trend and growth of clean technology businesses as opposed to having a laundry list of all the companies because in that case you probably get as many losers as you have winners. And, and really what we're thinking is that in terms of clean technology in both the, the public and private equity markets is that it's an ideal complement to traditional SRI portfolios because ESG and SRI traditionally, and this is not universally the case, tends to be very weak um, on energy and smaller technology companies because they tend to get weeded out um, you know, due to their energy impact. So you can actually capture back a lot of your technology and energy exposure and not be compromising your principles, uh, which we think is very important. And, and, and there, the other thing is that we don't believe, and this is a strong view that I hold, that all the 
ideal corporate governance and corporate responsibility and ideal government and um, policies in the world is enough to solve the sustainability crisis that we have. We really need technology tools and investment to really help answer the, the crisis uh, that the planet faces. And therein lies enormous opportunity, um, and I would love you know, to be a part of that, and why not profit from it? And um, we have a quick commercial here to join the Clean Tech Network. If you're interested, uh, we have conferences all over the world, and our websites have lots of information on the sector. And I'd be more than happy to discuss this at length with you and provide you further information or more, um, more, in more depth on either the public or private markets. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rafael. I appreciate that. Um, it's, uh, it's not for nothing that uh, Cleantech Group has the name that it does. Some people will tell you that it even invented the whole idea, and they could be right. Um, another veteran of the uh, yeah, of the um, entire low-carbon investment uh, frame uh, are our friends at Impacts. Um, Bruce has been working in this sector um, for almost as long as I have now, although he looks much younger. And uh, for that reason, uh, like the CleanTech Group, he can give you a longitudinal sense of the market, uh, particularly as we get into Q&A. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ken. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's the first sort of platform I think I've been on uh, in the U.S., despite being in, in the sector for a pretty long time. Um, we've been around uh, as a financial uh, boutique in the what we actually call environmental markets over in the UK, but uh, it's pretty much the same idea as, as clean tech, really since 1994. So we've seen a few cycles already. It started off at a very small uh, sector when I first started doing this in 1998 on the long-only side. I think there were only about 250 companies. Um, as you'll see later, that universe has grown uh, dramatically, uh, as we have. Uh, and um, you can see, uh, I think... You know, uh, as a group, we've now reached the, the one billion pound under management, two billion, or <laughs> dramatically fallen recently to 1.7 billion US uh, under management recently. I think the key message about that growth that really took off in sort of 2005, 2006, is for the first time investors could see that this clean tech or environmental market sector could do, deliver superior growth rates over a sustained period of time. I think that's the real key message as to, as to why one would want to invest in this sector, because it's a sector that offers superior growth rates over a long period of time. And I think that, that's a key message. We're now 28 people uh, based in uh, London and Hong Kong. Um, we've just got our, we've just started working very closely with PAX, uh, and PAX World have launched the fund. Uh, PAX were Global Green uh, earlier this year, and uh, we are the managers of that, so we're extremely proud to finally have a product uh, on offer over here in the U.S., and we see that the U.S. clearly is a very interesting area uh, for us to continue to grow. Just sort of reflecting a little bit on, what, on what's going on in the market, I mean, this is really the, the second uh, cycle we've seen. You know, the, the clean tech sector in 2000, again, was pretty... Uh, uh, pretty a booming, a booming sector, and then in 2002 it really suffered. Um, but it, as we've seen in the last sort of five years, continued uh, earnings growth has really driven driven the sector forward. And in this economic downturn, I think it's holding up uh, relatively well. As long as uh, there are obviously some sectors where we've seen some some uncertainty. So that's a little bit of a background to Impacts Group. We're a, a quoted company uh, on on the stock exchange in London, uh, with as I say, with uh, 28 people. 
So you know, what, what about this sector? We've already had a pretty interesting introduction. I think the key message is growth, and it is supported by a series of consistent drivers across these markets. It's all about you know, energy, water, and waste. Been, there's not, not been a lot of innovation in the last 20, 30 years, but that's really starting to come about now due to liberalization of those markets, the ever-tightening ratchet of environmental policy, and probably most importantly of all is the increased competitiveness of these new technologies, new ways of doing things. As the cost of conventional resources goes up, many of these new technologies have come down dramatically uh, in the period to make them that much more competitive. So that's the, that's the key message of why we think this is an interesting area to look at. So uh, one of the key challenges, why does this fit within a, a, a bigger portfolio? And this slide, a bit busy, it's got quite a lot of words on it, but the key message is you find these environmental opportunities in a large number of the conventional sectors. The left-hand column on this box is the conventional sectors where you find environmental opportunities, environmental business growth. You know, it's in the energy, it's in the materials, it's in industrials, it's even in consumer discretionary in technology and utility sectors. So it really is affecting a large part of the global economy and that's why it, it, it fits quite nicely within a global equities uh, portfolio. And the key message is that it's replacing the middle column with the high growth green column uh, which we see in, in the right-hand column. So that's where it is. And then if you split it down, as we've already heard uh, from Raphael, you, in simple, if you, if you divide it up in, into environmental sectors, we see three key areas, the sort of alternative energy area, the water treatment and pollution control, and the waste technologies and resource management. But again, the key message is this is not just about renewable energy. This is a much more diverse opportunity with a diverse range of, of growth stories. And I think that, that gives investors some comfort that you know, you're not just investing in one area of the economy which can be incredibly, incredibly volatile, it, 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 that there are you know, the drivers related to solar energy are very different to those related to metals recycling, are very different to those related to environmental testing and monitoring. It's all part of the bigger theme of making the world a cleaner, more efficient place, but from, in stock market terms, it is a much more diversified offering which you can feel safe putting in a wider portfolio. This slide shows the 20 different subsectors that we're increasingly sort of promoting as the different areas of the environmental theme, and we're working quite closely with the FTSE to develop a series of indices that will hopefully push forward on the, on the classification uh, of the environmental markets. The different companies shown there in the top row of each of these slides, you can, uh, each of those boxes, you have a, what we call a pure play company that does nothing else apart from operating the environmental sector. They're clearly attractive for investment because they're growing very fast. But also in the second row, you see bigger, more established companies which are increasingly uh, benefiting from the growth opportunities in environmental markets. I met, for example, yesterday a gentleman who's here from 3M. They've set up a renewable energy industry. And actually that can be a very interesting way to invest because the price or the valuation of those companies is not pricing in the opportunity that that company is going to benefit from from being involved in the environmental sector. So I think that there's both the pure play and also these more diversified companies that can also benefit uh, from the environmental uh, growth story. Just a little bit on the universe, again, trying to give this message um, that it is a big, diversified sector 
that is a, is a, is a uh, compelling area to put some equity. I mentioned earlier, when I first started doing this in 1999, um, we only had 250 companies to look at. Today, that's nearer to 1,200, 1,400 different companies, all involved in clean tech. That represents pretty explosive growth that we've seen over that area. And we see two universes, as I say, if you like, the pure play, dedicated specialist companies in the environmental sector, but also the all-cap universe, these bigger companies that are also active uh, in the space. So we offer two different strategies as fund manager, uh, whether you're looking for small, basically a small mid-cap type approach or a larger all-cap strategy, uh, which again in increases diversification. These portfolios are all global. Again, you know, if you're getting into clean tech or environmental markets now, you're still getting in pretty early. It's still at a pretty early stage. Um, and therefore, the global offering, we think, again, increases the diversification, but also reflects the scope of the opportunity uh, that you're seeing in these markets. Um, I was asked to comment a little bit on indices and benchmarks. I think, obviously, indices and benchmarks have a number of purposes. The first is you know, perhaps just to give, through ETFs, exposure to these sectors. And you can see there's a lot of ways of getting exposure to alternative energy or getting exposure to water, getting exposure to, to different ideas. And uh, I'm not going to comment on but There's clearly plenty of those. Um, the second where is basically measuring the performance of managers. You know, so clearly if you want to know if your manager is doing well against what, what, what a conventional sector in index would, would do, then again, we typically measure ourselves against the FTSE ET50 and the FTSE environmental opportunities all share. But then there's a third thing, and this is, I think, the big question a lot of pension funds have. You know, what, how do I measure this sector? What box do I put it into? And then for that purpose, these indices don't really uh, meet the requirement, and they're still left with measuring uh, us uh, managers against the FTSE All World or the MSCI World Index. And I think that's really the message. This is a global growth portfolio that's going to beat uh, the MSCI World over the long term simply because these markets are growing faster than others. So how's performance been? Uh, again, I sh perhaps should have gone back 10 years to show the whole experience, and we would have seen a pretty interesting time in 2002 when the whole world uh, collapsed. But really, the last five years have been interesting. And here we're looking at three different lines. The, the green is the global all cap. The sort of bluish color is uh, the diversified opp uh, environmental opportunities. And the green line is... Uh, the ET50, which is the concentrated environmental sector, which I think is interesting really to look at the end of 2007, how that sector really surged ahead. Um, and I think we'd have to acknowledge that there was an element of a bubble uh, in the environmental sector. I think that's something that want, people need to be a little bit careful of. Um, but again, if you, if you have a diversified portfolio, you're able to move out of the bubble area into the, into the more sustainable uh, growth stories. So you can see basically a consistent period of outperformance over the last five years. And again, that's transferring the 20% earnings growth that we've seen across the portfolio into share price performance. Just one final slide, uh, just to give you a bit of hope uh, with, with, with what's uh, you know, been a pretty dismal period for a lot of us in, in the last 18 months. As you've seen from the previous class, the share prices have obviously come off quite badly in the last 18 months. But this is the PE ratio, the valuation of the portfolio that we run in this sector. And you can see over the last five years, you know, basically between 16 times earnings to 22 times earnings has been the typical trading range. Today, our portfolio is on pretty much 10 times earnings. So 
I think that tells one, two key stories. First of all, we've not seen the earnings slow down. This is still a growth sector. The growth, I mean, clearly we're going into a recession. It's going to be affected. But these markets are still growing. And today, uh, you're able to buy into them at 10 times earnings. And we feel that that still gives a pretty compelling uh, story as to why this is an interesting sector to look at. So look forward very much to getting your questions. And thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Bruce. So I mentioned earlier that uh, SunTech is one of the leading uh, SRI, sorry, uh, solar companies uh, in the world today. It's particularly impressive because it's a leading company that's come to its leadership role in how many years? Seven years against competitors who've been doing this in some cases for a couple of decades. So quite a remarkable story. Polly's going to give you a sense of, uh, of the vision. And our thought was we've been talking at the global level on public equity and private equity, but it might be useful for you to get a sense of one company story that has really very much been on the cutting edge of, if you recall from the slides, the very fastest growing of these uh, clean energy sectors. Hi, good morning. I'm Polly Shaw. I'm the Director of External Relations for SunTech, which means I'm the policy wonk in the family. I'm here to convince you there is uh, light at the end of the tunnel. It's sunlight. Um, before, we, uh, before we move on, let me clarify just quickly again that we're going to be talking about PV and thin films, not the central station CSP. And I'm going to go through global and U.S. demand projections and uh, why uh, solar is really taking off and what we think is needed still. Before we move on, though, even better? Thank you. Um, before we move on, the drawing on the right is the new manufacturing and headquarters that I just saw two weeks ago, which is 85% reliant on renewable energy uh, with a 730KW solar array, BIPV. So a very quick introduction to the company. We're the largest publicly listed standalone uh, solar pure play in the world. Our core services are cell and module manufacture, but we also do building integrated PV, BIPV, and thin films, which are rolling out soon. Uh, our 2009 capacity is about 1.4 gigawatts projected for production capacity, and out of 12 and a half gigawatts expected production capacity in the world, that makes us pretty large still. I think uh, as of last week, we were $3 billion market cap, um, down from $13 billion earlier in the year. Um, but we are moving vertically uh, with uh, new business, sorry, new residential dealer uh, arrangements around the U.S., for example, with a new acquisition and, and uh, joint venture uh, announcements we made earlier this year, which gives us installation and new financing capabilities in many markets around the world. And our goal, again, is the lowest cost, one of the highest quality volume um, uh, manufacturers for the globe on solar. And the final note on our company before I move into the real meat is that we are obsessed with quality, as Dr. She reminded me two weeks ago. And, and we have a, a broad array of environmental and social responsibility initiatives. Um, we are ISO 9001 and 14001 certified. We're looking to our CSR task force that we have back in Wuxi is looking to formalize a lot of the CSR activities and environmental activities and labor and health and safety into uh, an internationally accepted standard like SA8000, something like that. So why is solar taking off? Um, well, we've got costs that are rapidly approaching grid parity in many markets around the world in the next few years, um, which forces when the, when the module costs begin coming down through the silicon shortage easing or improving efficiencies or improving um, production uh, capacity volume, 
then it moves the uh, pressure towards the BOS components and the installation efficiencies, which will come down in tandem, which are the other half of solar costs. Um, Solar then becomes the lower-risk electricity strategy, um, while traditional power costs keep improving, uh, rising. Uh, grid parity to us means high insulation or solar uh, power. You've got high electricity prices in comparison, and then the low costs of solar. And in our own projections, we are looking at an unsubsidized $4 a watt in 2012, which means about 18 to 20 cents a kilowatt hour, depending on uh, good sunshine. And that is our target for 2012. Um, when you look at the European market, for example, and some of the tariff uh, deficits they have, you've got some of the EU analysts who are looking at 25 to 30% electricity price increases in the next few years. Uh, at the same time, the solar industry is seeing our costs dropping in the next few years, and then there you get uh, grid parity. A number of northern European countries, uh, Spain, J Japan, Italy perhaps, Australia, California, Hawaii, parts rest of the U.S. come into line very soon in the next few years. Um, what places them there? Strong mandates and strong incentives. You've got 17 countries around the world, I think, who have feed-in tariffs, which are one form of incentive to ensure that solar goes into play. Um, and therefore, you've got low, large global demand forecasts. Uh, we're not in the biz business of making these projections, so I just threw a few of them up on the wall to give you the sense of scale. They differ quite considerably, but the, I, the, the end sum is it's big on the global demand projection. They haven't even factored in it, and I think to some degree they have not factored in China when you hit one RMB per kilowatt hour. Um, Sia, this is not their number. Uh, I think they need to, we all need to look again at our roadmaps in the U.S. because the prices and where they're going to be going. But if you even just took 15% of new um, capacity, new generation, by 2025 it's 120 mega, uh, gigawatts. So let's drill down on the U.S., actually. You have a number of new markets opening up on the utility scale. You've got 26 states around the country that have mandates through RPSs, Renewable Portfolio Standards. You've got a national law on federal facilities through the Energy Policy Act. Seven and a half percent of electricity has to come from renewables by 2025 uh, for the federal facilities. And as a result, you've got uh, utilities and especially the armed services, but a number of federal facilities jumping into solar with vast uh, purchases. You've got Nellis Air Force Base, 14 megawatts. You've got Alamosa in Colorado, 8 megawatts. You've got a number of utility announcements in the last few months alone, from the California Utilities to Duke to AES and so on, uh, wanting to own or help the ratepayers get solar onto the rooftops and into larger scale um, installations. At the same time, you've had a host of very uh, well-known companies, Macy's, Walmart, things like that going for large commercial. Uh, you've got zero energy building mandates in many parts of the country or guidelines and challenges uh, like the 2030 challenge. And then you've got very, very strong rebate programs in a number of states around the U.S. Um, you have a number of new financing means, everything from the investment tax credit that was just passed a few, year, a few weeks ago with the utility uh, allowance to allow them to take advantage of the tax credits, to power purchase agreements, which are a form of leasing on rooftops for 15 years at a below market electricity price. You've got some rec trading, which is uh, all over the map, depending on the rules for the rec trading in the U.S., 
Uh, carbon and the value of carbon trading is still very, very unsure because of how the draft rules are coming out in these markets in the U.S. And with property-based loans, you have another solution to this credit crisis, like Berkeley-style program. Um, this is only one reason why the solar industry is very positive about the future. Uh, you have four wholesale gas prices coming up, which are looking very scary to both the utilities and to the ratepayers. Uh, and this is just one snapshot. We would argue that in many markets, solar is already co very competitive. There's a whole lot of sunshine. Um, Four o'clock in Oakland on a summer's afternoon, PG&E will charge you on a time of use rate 35 to 40 cents a kilowatt hour, and that is not far off of what solar costs right now for the installation in Oakland. Um, it's about a penny or two off. So both utilities and consumers are looking at hedging their own um, their own costs. And, and let me give you a sense of what the competition looks like. The Federal Energy Re Re Regulatory Commission staff this morning, the summer put out a report talking about a 55% increase in reliance on natural gas since 2000. Those gas prices wholesale have tripled in the last five years. The capital costs of new power plant construction have doubled since 1999, tripled for nuclear power plants. There are 90 thirsty coal-fired power plants being proposed around the country uh, for which you've got to have uh, these costs uh, brought in, including the environmental waste from them. And um, you've got T&D impacts. You've got about $1.9 trillion worth of investment from what I heard Enronoc talk about this summer that is needed on this aging and stressed T&D uh, network, which solar, by the way, avoids. So um, when you look at how the stocks have been doing against solar, you look at solar as being a much more stable, low-risk investment. These products are going to be around for the next 30 to 50 years. Ours alone, our modules are guaranteed for 25 years. And it's a good uh, investment, especially if you believe in uh, adaptation to climate change and desertification and rising sea level rise and what that means then for traditional power. And by the way, if you believe the climate policy is coming there, it's on a few more costs. So the last thing that I would just say is that, you know, the public always loves solar. There are a range of benefits that you get out of solar. As you can see, energy independence at home or for the nation is not least of them. The diversity uh, is important, too. Solar will never be the silver bullet. You know, uh, even if we grow 100 times, we're only going to be um, a very small percentage of the mix, but it's a very stable, low-risk, and reliable part of that mix. But as a policy wonk, I have to close on the final note that you have to have good policies in place to make certain that you have a level playing field. You have to make certain that you're going to have consistent uh, energy laws around the country. Even China has national renewable portfolio standards and national investment plans for solar. Why we can't have them, I don't know. You've got to have exit strategies, and this is really important because all those feed-in tariffs in Europe are going to look a few, uh, very different in the next few years as we start hitting grid parity. And you want to make certain that the people who have invested in solar get a net metering type of return that ensures that they're still going to be paid. The true cost of electricity is that power costs at that time of day when solar is producing the most. And then it would be nice to have climate policy that actually does benefit solar, allowing solar to trade, specifying solar because this is energy efficiency in solar is what we should be investing in more than traditional power plants. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Polly. We're synchronized. Isn't that nice?
So we're going to take just a couple more minutes before we go to uh, the open Q&A uh, with one additional question. When we were meeting this morning in, uh, over breakfast to talk about our presentation, it occurred to all of us that there's probably somebody in the room, probably, who was curious to know how the last four to six weeks of, of market turbulence had impacted our individual views or our industries uh, from our perspective. And uh, a number of us uh, uh, have, Polly's too young, actually, but the rest of us have been through these kinds of cycles before, not quite this dramatic, but inside of our sector, every bit as dramatic. Um, so I hope that we're able to give a little bit of a perspective for all of you in general, and then we're going to go to specific uh, Q&A from that point. Let me start by saying I was uh, sitting with some neighbors around the um, an evening bonfire this weekend, and a friend of mine works at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and he looked at me and he said, okay, you're a renewables guy. Are you nervous? And I said, well, you know, I'm a financial guy, and, and that this is not an easy time to be a financial guy, but I have to say, if you're looking at a turbulent, a turbulent financial climate, if you're looking at murky sector analysis and forecasts in individual sectors, Given the fundamentals that we talked about at the beginning of this presentation, which I very firmly believe in, where else would you rather be than investing in or working in, as, as we all do, uh, this sector? And I believe that very firmly. It's a personal conviction or I wouldn't be here. I hope that uh, we can have a good conversation around that question as we go forward, but I'm going to ask each of the panelists to briefly give you their thoughts about how we should be seeing the markets today, given everything we've uh, experience over the last few weeks. And if you guys want to turn your mics on, if they're not already on, please. So, Rafael, may I start with you? Sure. Um, is this working? Is this on? Okay, great. Um, first thing I would, I, I would say is that I don't know if we've seen the bottom yet, and it could, but I think you'll see the bottom during 2009 for sure. Um, there's a lot of people who will be cleared out. But what I, what I am saying is that you really, and this is incumbent upon financial advisors, there's a lot of products and financial products out in this space, a lot of Johnny-come-latelys, and there's, there's some good product and there's a lot of bad product. And you really need to do your due diligence and look what's under the hood in these things in terms of strategy, and particularly in terms of the quality of the companies in the index or in the fund, et cetera, because that's really the value you provide to your customer, to your clients. Um, there's a lot of these companies in all these high-growth sectors that aren't going to make it. And there's a lot that will make it, but they'll never earn a good return on their capital. So it's really important to have the best companies and really be very knowledgeable about what's under the hood. And if you do some research on the websites and things like that, you can learn a lot um, about what's out there. And I'm glad that um, Impacts is here because we feel that they're one of the best players in the sector. Um, also, I think it's very important to have diversified exposure. I would personally... Uh, head for the hills and away from any of the um, if you're a long-term investor which all of you should be I would stay away from the very narrow uh, sector indices such as solar or wind alone because that's going to be very volatile and the deeper you go in any one sector you'll get as many losers as you will winners and so um, those are very good for short-term trading and for hedging but I wouldn't say they're long-term investments and, and, and finally um, you're also looking for tax efficiency as a major issue um, so and, and management costs. Uh, I would say that we were between 5% and 35% ahead of almost all of our peers. Um, and then uh, October hit, and I can't even say that right now. I'm having a full plate of crow. But this is a panic market, and I think you'll see we do a, a very heavy focus on the quality of the companies that are in our index and that they will survive and they will do well. 
but there's, it's really, really important to do your due diligence, and that's really the value as financial advisors that you add. Thank you, Raphael. Bruce. Yeah, it, it, yeah, there's no question that uh, the, re- the recent period has been a, a real shock for us all. I think one of the key messages we've always suggested about this sector is that there's an element of secular growth, which means non-cyclical. It will continue to grow whatever the, whatever the market. Now, we have to acknowledge that uh, what we've seen in the, last, in the last period has been a bit of a surprise to us all. I think, you know, for example, you know, building insulation and energy-efficient buildings, you know, a great secular story, but if you're not building any houses, those markets are going to really suffer. If you think about other sectors, you know, solar and wind, they've clearly had great, great growth prospects at the moment with debt, debt being what it is. Many of these projects need debt to, to be built, so there has been a bit of a slowdown. So there are definitely parts of the clean tech environmental markets that have been sort of directly affected um, by the crisis that we see. But also, there are some tremendous business models in this market which are not affected to the same extent. You know, the filtration market is a very compelling business model with these companies with 60-70% repeat business. You've got certain of the recycling and waste management companies which are always going to have to treat waste and are always going to get long-term contracts and therefore be, have extremely sustainable profits. So overall, as I said in, in, on the valuation slide, we've not seen a huge slowdown in expectations for earnings, expectations for profit growth. And therefore, you know, all we've really seen is a huge derating and the whole, whole sector's just got a whole lot cheaper. So for people who are brave and are prepared to sort of step up to the plate, we think this is a very interesting uh, proposition for the long term. But one has to acknowledge that in the current sort of global recession prospects, certain bits of this clean tech and this environmental market story are going to be affected. Thanks, Bruce. Polly. Can I just add in a few words? I went to Solar Power International 2008, two weeks ago, where you'd almost never know that there was an economic crisis going on. I couldn't get near our booth. It was stuffed, just like everybody else. There were deals going on everywhere, out in the hallways, on knees, on chairs, and so on. Um, We're into this industry for the long term, and so we're looking at the longer-term view. And when you look at all these utilities and uh, the Middle East investing heavily in solar, it makes you think that there is a a very stable long-term benefit to everybody being in this. You look at some of the large commercial entities that have gotten into it. It's not just because of carbon commitments of their own or voluntary commitments on something else. It's because they're looking at electricity rates and where they're going uh, you've got uh, very large firms that are actually investing for, the, for their long haul, and it was for the same reason as energy efficiency upgrades, because it makes economic sense. So I, I, would I want to be anywhere else right now? Certainly not in the traditional power sector. I think that this is the growth area. Terrific. Thank you. Now, thank all of you for being very patient with us. Uh, Doug, do we need to have folks go to the central mic there? So because they're recording the session, if you wouldn't mind going to the central mic, then we'll be sure your question is accurately recorded, and everybody will hear it well from the floor. Um, And that also means that I don't get the feeling of power I usually have from selecting who's smiling at me and not, but I'll live with that. So uh, help yourself, uh, queue up, and please tell us who you are and uh, pass along your questions for for any of us uh, up here in front. Okay, uh, and this is for the whole panel. Uh, my name is Paul Collins, and I'm with the American Trust Energy Alternatives Fund. And uh, just to say, show you I'm not too brilliant, we launched our fund on June 30th. So it's, it's been a bit of a trying time. Um, I want to uh, uh, echo Raphael's remarks about 
how important it is for any type of um, alternative energy fund to be broadly diversified and not just in traditional solar, wind, etc. That certainly has helped, but you, uh, you can't eat relative performance. I'm afraid we haven't uh, had a positive return. Nevertheless, it's helped. What I wanted to ask the panel is, uh, who do you see as the low-cost producer in uh, solar energy? And do you think that continues to be um, a market advantage? Thank you. That's not fair. You can't give the mic to Polly. <laughs> Thank you right, for so giving me such a great question. Somebody else is going to get to answer this question after all <laughs> remarks are gratefully accepted. We expect to be the low-cost solar producer. We've got um, a lot of polysilicon coming on in the next few years in China. Uh, we have partnership, you know, partnerships with many of those uh, silicon producers and even some minority equity stakes, if I understand correctly, and we have four factories, all of our four factories are in China, um, yet having the high quality that we all expect and the long warranted modules. So we expect uh, SunTech to be the lowest cost provider uh, globally, and that, that's why we're so aggressive in some of our targets for 2012. Yeah, I think the, the economics of solar are not, um, what's the word, homogeneous. They depend exactly where you're putting that panel, whether you're putting it in the desert in Nevada, whether you're putting it on your roof in uh, Munich. So I think it is different, and I think different uh, panels will have superior economics in different situations. Now, clearly, SunTech have got a pretty compelling message on economics simply because of their scale. They are so, just so huge, they're able to crank things out at pretty low prices. Uh, we're pretty impressed also with SunPower. They've got some pretty interesting technology They've got that allows them to create a panel that hasn't got wires on the front of it, and therefore their efficiency is that much higher. They're able to get efficiencies towards 25%. Superior conversion efficiencies will lead to superior economics, so that, that's clearly you know, they've got visibility of somewhere between 12 and 18 cents a kilowatt hour. And then the other name, again, is, is First Solar. They're using thin film technologies. Now, the technologies that the crystalline guys are, are using is effectively still a batch process. Now, if we can move towards a continuous process uh, along the thin film lines, then clearly the potential for the bring down costs is pretty compelling. And again, a U.S. company, First Solar, is definitely the cheapest uh, on the block at the moment. But again, you know, the efficiency, there is an efficiency penalty there. So there's this sort of moving feast. There's lots of new technologies em emerging, but there won't be one winner. There's probably going to be four or five that have advantages in different, in different market environments. Go ahead. Um, that's, an ad that's a question I don't necessarily have an answer to, and even if you're a low-cost producer, if the prices are lower, I don't know if the margins may, may be there to make up for that. So I don't have an answer to that. I look constantly for areas where you can distinguish yourself, and perhaps one way we look at it is perhaps the, the equipment manufacturers who help you make the panels um, to begin with, sort of the upstream play, just like Advanced Materials or Meyerberger or Centrotherm, may end up being better plays, even though it's a derived demand and very volatile right now, that's an area where it's, the barriers to entry are very high, and it's difficult. So, you know, in the short term, they're going to be affected, but maybe that's the best way to play it. I'm not always looking for, um, you know, who's going to succeed is not different from who's going to really earn a lot of profits. So to give you a sense of uh, excellent points uh, of just how interesting this market is today, we're talking these answers all went to, uh, to photovoltaic, solar PV systems. Um, the last one of the last major utility, PG&E utility awards for new installation 
was won by uh, two companies, one of them an established player, SunPower, uh, the other a startup, not yet uh, publicly listed, called OptiSolar, and they both had to be able to commit to put, uh, to generate power at 10 cents uh, a kilowatt hour in California in 2010. Uh, at least that's what they said. So uh, interesting opportunities. Brand new company in the case of OptiSolar, three, three, four years old. So the opportunities we see there are interesting. Now we have to look beyond that. At the same time, there are uh, contracts in place for solar thermal generation, the large heat-related uh, engine, the installations that go out in the desert typically. Again, signing contracts at this time for, for prices, uh, in, in theory, in the 10 cent and below uh, per kilowatt hour range. Not yet fully delivered yet. We'll see. But very interesting activities in both directions. Thank you all. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you for being here. I'm Robert Lost, Senior Portfolio Manager for Integrity Mutual Funds. Um, but I don't have an investment question. I have sort of a community activism question. My question is that I'm having a discussion with uh, my hometown, the city of Knoxville, the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, and a couple of other uh, local outfits that are promoting what in Knoxville is called Green Power Switch, established by the Tennessee Valley Authority, where you pay a few dollars extra on your monthly utility bill to get um, to pay for green power, in effect. Um, and all of their marketing is going towards green power switch. The community is getting involved. The city is getting involved. There is not one word about conservation in any of our tax dollars that are being used for this marketing. Um, so we're having these discussions. Uh, I've sort of not pushed it too far because I was waiting to hopefully hear from some of you folks about this. Their argument for pushing green power switch instead of putting in CFLs or reducing water usage with low-volume toilets, for instance, is that power, alternative power production is not at grid parity, so we have to keep paying extra for it. I don't think that's true from my perusal of the June congressional budget items on this. For example, they count the subsidies required for green power but they conveniently ignore all of the subsidies that the fossil fuel industry gets. My question to you, and, and I'm talking about things that aren't direct, like over a billion dollars a year from the federal government to treat black lung disease. My question to you is, is there some research that I can find that you can suggest to me with some figures in it that I can use to knock this not at grid parity yet uh, argument on its backside? Great question. Everybody wants a piece of this one. <laughs> Go ahead, Rob. I guess we're, I guess we're on here. Um, yeah, I should also tell you that um, on my other hand, I also run an energy efficiency solutions uh, company. Um, and we see energy efficiency as the first alternative, much better than renewable energy, uh, because the return on investment is so high. Typically, we're talking about paybacks under three years. Um, and that's, that's really my be the point, too, but I'm looking for some written right. support. Yes, there are. And um, it's hard in Tennessee because you're in Tennessee where the TVA is, and they're giving electricity away for free. Um, and I'm dealing with the TVA in, in Chattanooga yeah. right now. Um, and it's very hard. And there, yes, there is research from a number of organizations, from the Pew Climate Trust, um, from McKinsey, um, the Stern Report. I'm going to go take notes. Keep talking. Yeah, there, there, are, there are a number of organizations, and I can answer that with you afterwards, but yes, there are, there's a lot of research, but, you know, full cost accounting of the cost of renewable energies is something that people try and avoid, and typically lobbyists focus on 
privatizing the benefits and uh, you know public you know and, and bringing to the public sector all the uh, negative attributes of fossil fuels or or growing corn or ethanol or all those sort of things and, and that's sort of um, trying to avoid the, the, the full cost accounting. If you did a full cost accounting, you could probably add in 50 cents a gallon for gasoline or, uh, you know, for gasoline before the, before the Iraq war and then maybe another couple bucks a gallon for it afterwards. So um, that gives you an idea how you account for costs is, is obviously the critical issue. Polly? Yeah, I was just going to say the th same thing. Why don't you come up afterwards and we'll give you a list of reports. Um, I come from the state of California where we have a state law saying that you, the utilities have to procure energy efficiency first, then DSM and DR, then renewables, and only then can they come back to the PUC and ask for the cleanest available fossils. Terrific. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is I'm sure, Doug, you're probably best placed of all to answer this. Uh, do you want to have a quick comment? Yeah, Doug is another option. Doug, uh, if anybody doesn't know Doug Arnn from NREL, another option here. Thank you very much. Good question. Yes, sir. Uh, Charles Moore, Will J. Reed Foundation. Um, uh, I was kind of hoping that the speculative meltdown would have opened up a little space for discussion of uh, alternative paradigms for economic uh, development, such as a steady state economy in which uh, optimizing return is not the paradigm, but uh, rather uh, looking at other parameters. For instance, why do we never talk about optimizing the return to the employees of these corporations? Fair enough, Charles. Anybody want to take a crack at that? Uh, we certainly heard some of that this morning in the, in the plenary session. Everybody here is working for a company. They're not academic, so they may be a little shy. Yeah, it, it's tough when you're when you're focused on optimizing growth to talk about something that would detract from that. Well, it's also their fiduciary responsibility as individual managers uh, and participants to, to do what folks are given the money to do. So it's a more complex issue, but certainly this is the right place to have a conversation more broadly. Thank you, Charles. Next question. Um, Michael Lynn, Veriswealth Partners. I've heard a lot about from other speakers about the need to deal with the electrical grid, particularly in the United States. Could one of you or several of you comment on what needs to happen in terms of creating a more energy efficient and a distributive uh, electrical grid, number one, and two, where the investments, therefore, would be in that area? Great question. Um, so as I mentioned, I heard Enernoc give a presentation at the Zero Week earlier in February where they looked at $1.9 trillion of investments through 2030 to meet the 9% of peak demand increase that is expected um, there are a number of reports. Google Org just came out with a new plan, actually, for how they see, and it gets into some nice ju juicy details on T&D. I mean, first stop, we need transmission lines, um, it, it, especially in the places where it's windiest or sunniest and so on, and, and that is going to be a big push. Um, you've got a lot of... Uh, You've got a lot of great plans looking at smart grids and efficiency on the D side of that and trying to locate um, central station solar closer to some of the load centers or even on-site renewables right into the D network so that you relieve the distribution feeders and so on gets you a long way there. So everything from renewable portfolio standards with solar carve-outs percentages of solar, everything from uh, national transmission lines, a lot of R&D and uh, federal subsidies into the TND network um, are needed. And then um, we need better 
measurement and evaluation studies of what energy efficiency and distributed generation do to relieve the pressure on the aging grid so that we can actually keep building more political pressure to bring in these distributed generation energy efficiency technologies. Yeah, in terms of the, the investment universe in this space, it's exactly what, what Polly's described. And obviously, perhaps the most active area is in the smart meters, in, in, the, in, in, in the metering companies, which are benefiting substantially, because the payback periods here for the utilities are extremely high, just simply on the savings you make on, on reading meters remotely rather than um, uh, sending, some, some, sending some guy to, to read it. But obviously, that paves the way for a much closer relationship between utility and customer such that he can start um, you know, putting out tariffs which will start to genuinely incentivize energy efficiency, which we all agree is the lowest cost way to, to, to reduce energy and reduce carbon dioxide. Yeah, I, I think you brought a very clear point, and that is that we have a 1915, 1920s technology and electricity with you know electrical demand growing significantly and rolling brownouts that cost the state of Pennsylvania a couple billion dollars in domestic product every year. Um, and the situation is getting worse. Um, you have to be careful, because even in the metering, there's a lot of hype and companies overvalued in terms of what they say they can do. And demand response is an enormously difficult field. And I don't think that the demand response companies that are public today will be around much longer. They'll probably all get acquired. But it's a huge area. And the technology and software and things to be able to manage and network um, electricity transmission is very important. Some of the grid operators, which are quasi-governmental private organizations, are also dragging their feet because some of the utilities have monopolies in the states and they don't want to have it opened up, Kentucky um, being a good example. But things are starting and being able to put power back onto the grid, being able to have dynamic pricing and all these things, this is absolutely a critical area. Um, for the country and transmission, I see is uh, it, in the U.S. alone. It's a multi, you know we could be talking hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars required to upgrade our grid infrastructure, and it's absolutely essential. I mean, I would start with 10 billion, but um, it's it's absolutely uh, essential, particularly on the East Coast between um, Washington and Boston, but also in the West Coast and a few other areas. It's it's just uh, our Achilles heel. To give you a sense of how much attention is being focused on this, I'm doing some work with the Bipartisan National Commission on Energy Policy, which is preparing the position papers for the new administration staff when they arrive in the first quarter of next year. And one of the – there is a discussion around renewables, a discussion around, uh, you know, a whole for transport, a central thrust, a discussion around the whole transmission and distribution side of the equation. One of the interesting sub-analyses that's not been done officially but done by some of the staff was that they came up with – one of the staff folks came up with a number of $1.5 trillion for the grid build-out in the United States. So the first question somebody else asked was, suppose you just took that and you used it to buy renewables right now. Instead of building a line, just put renewables every place you possibly could. And the analysis that they came back with was that it is, in fact, more cost-effective uh, by a significant margin to build the transmission uh, and then build renewables where they're optimized as opposed to putting renewables where they aren't optimized uh, and leaving the transmission aside. So this is a topic you're going to hear a lot more of. If any of these things are discussed in Washington, it, it will come up. Yes, sir. Thank you. That, that was very interesting. Um, I'm Lincoln Payne. I'm a, an investment consultant, SRI investment consultant in Berkeley. Um, every 10 to 15 years, the price of oil spikes, drawing billions of dollars uh, into alternative energy, and then it falls magically, 
and uh, and it washes out a great deal of that investment. Um, the last time, I, as an investment uh, professional, I saw this happen in the 90s. We saw scads of uh, alternative energy mutual funds crash and burn, leaving hardly any still in the field. Uh, obviously, the demand uh, ratio has changed as a result of the uh, global warming and climate change issue, and so there's a huge change in that. And I hear this time it's different a great deal when, I ask this, when I've asked this question before, and I assume it must be different to some degree for that reason. But still, uh, at what price of oil uh, do you folks begin to have a problem? You folks. I'm going to ask uh, uh, Bruce to start with that question because he's, uh, uh, he has been through a good part of this before. That, was it, that is working. Yeah, the, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. There have been a few cycles. What happens is that the price of oil goes up. Uh, there's a lot of interest in alternative energy. There's a lot of investment in conventional energy. Price comes down. It's less competitive. Um, I think what one of the, I mean, to say it's different this time, I don't know, is the, is the right response. It's, it's, it, it, things have advanced this time. There's no question that, you know, as time goes on, there's more investment in solar, there's more investment in wind, and inevitably the cost of those guys keeps coming down with economies of scale, bigger turbines, more facilities, and that sort of break-even point changes as we move through each individual cycle. It's probably fair to say, you know, I would be disingenuous. As the oil price was going through the roof, I was busy telling investors that $50 a barrel was the thing I was comfortable about. So I would be disingenuous not to change that. But the analysis suggests that around $50 a barrel, you know, that's when it makes a lot of sense, particularly for wind, uh, which has got a lot cheaper. There are mitigating factors in here. You know, these sectors, there are a lot of renewable energy targets really across the globe. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest changes since the last crisis, but, sorry, the last boom in, in renewables in 2002. There really were only three or four markets then. It was just Spain, Germany, Denmark, and occasionally the U.S. paid a bit of interest. Today, there are 45 countries around the world with programs in place, targets in place to support renewable energy. So it's not going to fall back, even if the economics change, simply because there are targets and, and subsidies in place. So, you know, to say we're not going to have a slow, you know, a, a slowdown for this spectacular growth we've seen is, is, is sort of misleading. But, uh, you know, the economics consistently are getting better as, the, as these technologies get cheaper. Because, you know, whereas oil is only getting more expensive to get out of the ground, these new renewables are only getting cheaper as we learn better ways of putting them together. I would even tell you to a certain degree it doesn't matter because the vast majority of oil is used as a transportation fuel or a chemical feedstock and it has very little to do with the price of electricity in most of the world. That's really driven by coal and natural gas prices and good luck trying to build a coal-fired power plant right now. Nobody wants one. So that's increasingly uh, a demand for natural gas and, and I have to say even hopefully nuclear now because there's no fuel that can stop three coal-fired power plants a week being built in China and India. Um, except for nuclear. And if they continue building at this rate, the ballgame is over in terms of our climate. So the real issue is that oil prices, are, you'll see increasing bifurcation where oil has a lot less to do with electrical prices. Um, and you can see that, that it's really gas and coal that drive that, and that's a lot driven by the economy. And it doesn't really matter that much. It does in, in other aspects, but not, not uh, you know, that's it's really, I don't see it affecting solar in particular. Polly? 
Uh, you've both said the points that I was going to make. The only thing I was going to say is they're completely different drivers. I think oil was $11 a barrel back in 1998, just as the first U.S. RPS was being put into place. And as you've already mentioned, there are a number of state or country mandates now around the world that specify renewables and sometimes even solar. And then you've got building turnover. You've got the U.S. projected to turn over about 75% of its building stock in the next 30 years, if you look at Architecture 2030. Um, so we're rebuilding all of these, uh, the square footage that we have in the U.S. And with those uh, new buildings come very, very aggressive building standards that specify energy efficiency and even sometimes renewables or solar, if you look at San Francisco, for example. Um, in China, you've got the same thing with building stock turning over completely by 2030, if you look at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. So between the state and country renewable targets and then the energy efficiency or uh, zero carbon uh, standards on the buildings, um, I think you've got really dramatic pressures that go in line with the natural gas and coal costs that you were talking about that I would have said too. Last question, and we're going to wrap up just a couple of minutes late. Yes, sir. Hey, Tom Oser. I'm with Portfolio Resources Group and Portfolio Manager with High Impact Investments. And my, my question is for Polly. I was hoping to hear uh, your recent announcement regarding the alliance or uh, the coming together with MMA Renewables. If you would expand on that regarding uh, solar uh, financing and that alliance, and maybe the other panelists could comment as well on, do you see that as a, a, a trend? I think you've probably read a lot of analysts' projections that there's going to be more and more vertical integration. Um, we were a commodity provider through integrators in the U.S. and in Europe and so on. And in the U.S., we have um, acquired an installation into the largest integrator in the country, I believe, uh, Energy, sorry, EI Solutions. They did the Google Complex, Disney, Sony, and so on, which gives us enhanced services in the U.S. But at the same time, we announced this joint venture called Gemini, with MMA Renewable Ventures, which gives us a special dedicated financing capability for certain size systems. And that's very, very exciting to us as we look at the U.S. market, Middle East, um, some of the other markets. Uh, it, it does not affect what we're doing in Europe right now or in Australia. I, the announcement's about two weeks old. And so just keep an eye on Gemini. I think um, I'd actually ask my peers to talk about what they see as happening in the solar space beyond Suntex, you know, integration. Yeah, one of, one of the issues, obviously, with uh, the, the credit market is the need to find a way of financing these, these solar plants. In the last couple of years, really, there's been banks and, and, and credit providers falling over themselves to finance uh, credit uh, solar plants. Now, obviously, you know, in typical, these plants are financed with as much as 75% you know, debt, and obviously in the current market, that's pretty challenging. So I think it's interesting that Suntech are looking for innovative ways to finding uh, to, to be able to do this, because this is going to be a challenge for the next sort of uh, 24 months. Yeah, I, I think you'll see uh, also a greater uh, look to financing um, energy conservation measures just because um, it's a lot less risky. Um, I actually don't know, is MMA still alive? Um, it, it, it's, um, they're hometown boys for me. But 
it, it's it's a scary time. And uh, but on the other hand, uh, Blue Source just announced a very large round of funding from um, Goldman Sachs, and so there is, uh, and and that's really on carbon reduction overall, no matter what form it takes. And so I think at some point things are going to settle out. I just don't have the crystal ball to tell you how you know how exactly and when that's going to happen. But I live next door to the founders of Sun Edison. And they've absolutely done tremendously in the uh, solar PPA model. Thanks very much. Listen, thanks to all of you for your excellent questions and your time. Thanks to the panel.